Welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. I, I hope you know this. It is such uh, a treat for me every time I get a chance to, to, to be with you all, to be with you at home as, as well as you're sitting there in your pajamas eating eggs and watching here. Um, it's, it's a treat uh, to, to be here. Obviously, my, my heart is here most of my life has been here, and it's a pleasure to continue to be a part of this church family, and I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity. But let's get into it. We're in this series called The Radiant Life, and today is a doctorate in self, and I'm, I'm picking a passage of scripture that probably won't immediately move any of us to think about a doctorate in self, but I think it may become clear as we go along, but we're talking about the passage from John chapter 4. Uh, where Jesus has this encounter with a woman at the well. And as I read the scripture passage, I would encourage you just to reflect on the intimacy of this relationship with this woman and the Son of God who knows her intimately and what might be going on there. So if you would stand, please, give your attention to God's word. From John chapter 4, we'll be reading from verse 4 through verse 29. Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, And I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well? And drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, The time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain 
everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving the water, her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? This is the word of the Lord. You could be seated. A radiant life. That's what we're reflecting on together over uh, four months, all throughout Lent and all throughout the Easter season. One third of a year. Talking about a radiant life. Reflecting together. We're reflecting together what it means to have a life that is radiant. And by this, we mean that the light within us, the truth, the goodness, the beauty within us, radiates out to this world that so desperately needs this. To have a radiant life means that there is something true and good and beautiful that is a growing reality within us. But this radiance, this truth and goodness and beauty It's not for us. It's for the world. A life without radiance is a life that is folded back on itself. Where we end up seeing people as either means to our ends or obstacles and threats who keep us from getting what we believe we need. It is an exhausting thing, actually, to live a life that is not radiant. Because this preoccupation with myself, with using people to get what I want or seeing them as obstacles or threats in my way, this forces me to be ever vigilant, to make sure I get what's coming to me and that nobody stops me or hurts me or gets in my way. It's exhausting to live like that. And we should say it plainly to each other. We should say plainly with humble courage and honesty. Most of humanity lives like this all the time. And I'm part of that humanity. And I live like this as well. And all this has this brutally harmful effect on the world. It's what someone has referred to as a vandalization of shalom. Shalom, God's desire his for peace, but more than peace, for human flourishing and all the details of life. What the world is supposed to be. This beautiful flourishing, human flourishing. But our life folded back on ourselves is harmful to that. It affects it deeply. We see this in, in so many ways that we just reflect on the, uh, the news any given day. For example when we consider the rollout of the vaccine for COVID, this deadly disease that has harmed so many lives. When you look at a map of the world, it is the poorest populations of this world, the most underserved, who are in the back of the line, while rich nations are able to get what they need. Even our own country, if we see a, look at a map of the rollout of the vaccine, we see that the rollout of the vaccine is so much slower in poor areas and in areas that are populated often by people of color. And in the midst of all that, don't we also read about people who are jumping the line, 
who have resources and connections to get the vaccine before others, in a world full of people who are radiant, whose inner truth and goodness and beauty shone forth into the world. This would never happen. The most vulnerable would be cared for first. Imagine that world. But this is not really a harder way of living, to be radiant. It is actually the way we are created to be, to shine, to be about others. When we are learning to be radiant, we have this deep sense that this is the best possible life. life. To be radiant is what it means to be fully human. The exhausting thing, actually, is to be obsessed with myself. The exhausting thing is to always be about my agenda and to using people to get what I want or protect myself from people who would take from me. That's what's exhausting. It's so old. Jesus came to liberate us from exhausting lives like that. That's why he would always say, if you want to find your life, you'll have to lose it. But if we clutch our lives to our chests, we will never find them. We'll be, using biblical language, lost. But to pursue this radiant life well requires us to not ignore ourselves, but actually to be courageously aware of who we actually are. And this is very hard work. And it requires, as the title of this week indicates, a doctorate in self. So to get into this doctrine itself, let's begin by looking at the importance of truth. The importance of truth. A life that is not radiant, a life that is folded back on itself, a life that is oriented around protection and working hard at getting what we want, will be a life that must protect itself from the truth. And particularly, truth about myself. When you think about it, most friend and family arguments... Most church conflict, I know you guys don't have any here, but in other churches, most church conflict, most political debates, most theological debates, most comment sections in social media, particularly when they become adversarial, as they often do, are fueled by the unwillingness or the inability of one or both parties to be attentive to the truth. For example, if a husband and wife are having a heated argument and the focus is on being right, or defending, or pushing their narrative. No substantial learning will occur. Usually one person eventually will give up, and the other person, at least for a while, will think they won. But both people will walk away eventually with a bit of an empty feeling inside. Both people will realize at some level that truth was not served. And there's a whole mess of protecting and blaming, and the orientation around the imperfections of the other person. It's like those people, these people, not us, of course, but those other people in those moments are reflecting on the first words of Jesus as he began his public ministry, and they hear him saying inside their heads, the kingdom of God is here. Get your wife to repent. Get your husband to repent. And the focus ends up being around the shortcomings of the other person, which, of course, are legion. There's no shortage of evidence that the other person is profoundly flawed. 
But when our orientation is around the shortcomings and the imperfections and the sins of the other person, this very effectively keeps us from learning the truth about ourselves. And let me say this really clearly. There can be no true spiritual growth that is not founded upon the truth of who I actually am. When we try to build our spiritual lives around false narratives of who I am, around our justifications and our rationalizations and around our focus on the flaws of others, we are building our spiritual lives upon sand. And nothing substantial, nothing strong, nothing enduring can be built upon such a fragile and shifting foundation. It takes great courage and humility to be willing to understand and accept and enter into the truth about myself but it is a necessary path to walk if we desire a radiant life. I was in a situation in the fairly recent past with a few friends of mine who were working on some projects together. We went away for a couple days to pray and to plan and to get at some things. There had been some conflict. And one evening there was some truth-telling going on uh, with one of these friends particularly. There was a bit of a conflict that needed to be unpacked. And we were there uh, with as much love and kindness as possible, as possible, trying to let this friend know how he was being experienced by us. And several of us shared uh, in detail about what we were seeing. And each time someone shared their experience, this friend, and he truly is a friend, he's a wonderful human being. But in this moment, he would immediately discount what we were saying. He would argue that he was being misunderstood. And if we only listened to him carefully, we would see that we had an inaccurate understanding of his behavior. His defensiveness was so strong that even after several of us shared our experiences with him, his insecurity, his fragile internal world would not allow him to create space in his soul to hear us. And so he kept saying, this is so frustrating because you guys don't understand me. Later on, late at night, he and I were alone together. I knew it was a, a hard day for him, so I asked him, hey, how you doing? And again, he said, I'm just frustrated. You guys don't understand me. And I said, as kindly as I could, if one friend calls you a horse, you can ignore him if you want to. But if five friends who love you call you a horse, it's probably time to buy a saddle. But it, it, it never got through. This person's internal fragility kept him from hearing the truth. And defensiveness is the surest sign that we are operating from an internal world that always feels we are not enough. So we have to protect ourselves from people who point out unpleasant truths about us. And I get this. We all get this, right? There are a whole mess of times in our lives when our insecurities are running wild inside us. And there's just no space to hear the truth. It feels like, actually, that the truth, if we received it in, would crush us, would destroy us. So we defend ourselves, or we hide, or we get angry, and the truth cannot get to us. I know that feeling. You know it, too. It's normal. In, In spite of the bluster and bravado that many live with from time to time, we all know that if we are quiet enough 
and created enough space for our inner world to be open to the truth, we would admit that there are so many times when there is this little boy or little girl inside us who's just wondering if we're okay. Am I okay? And we fear the truth because it feels harmful to that little boy or that little girl. I get that. I know that feeling quite well. But this is why the pursuit of truth about ourselves requires such courage and such humility. You see, we really do need each other. We do really, we really do need the church. We really do need God. Left to ourselves, our internal lies will destroy us. And they will lead us astray. And they will keep us from building a foundation of truth, which is the only foundation that will support a radiant life. Next important step along the road to a doctrine in self is a deep confidence in God's goodness. In order to deal redemptively with the truth about ourselves, the courage and humility required will always be strengthened or harmed by what we think about and believe about God. In fact, and I, I, I think it's Tozer who said this, what we think and believe about God is the most important thing about us. What we think and believe about God is the most important thing about us. And one of the major ways that God leads us into a radiant life is by purging us continually of all our thoughts about God, which are not God. And we could spend several sermons talking about how this happens in various aspects of our lives, but I want us to zero in on one area where we must pay close attention. As we seek to pursue truth about our inner world, we need to be aware of how our insecurities, our internal sense of not being enough, our self-condemnation, all this can be projected easily onto God. And God then joins in with all the other voices in our lives, both the internal and the external voices who tell us that we're not enough and who condemn us as being inadequate, that we don't measure up. And God can begin to take on over the course of a lifetime the character for some people of a distant, uncaring, and somewhat disappointed father or mother. And this works for us, actually. We, we cooperate with it. It confirms what we already believe about ourselves, and it keeps us from any significant transformation. Because at the core of a radiant life is the deep awareness that we are precious to God, that we matter to him, that we are objects of his love, and that God, at his very core, at his very essence, is good, and he is favorably disposed towards us. There are so many passages of Scripture that teach this. Let me just mention a few of them. I'm just going to rattle them off and see if there is space in you to receive this today. Or perhaps more importantly, to notice where something inside us resists these truths. Or where we may want to talk about other characteristics of God that do not quite seem so good or gentle. And ask ourselves, why do our minds go here so quickly? Why is it so hard to receive and rest in the fact that God is good and he is on our side? The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. Taste and see that the Lord is good. His mercies are new 
every morning. His love endures forever. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Jesus looked out upon the multitudes and he was moved with compassion. Neither do I condemn you. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus is a friend of sinners. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Those are just a handful of passages that came to my mind right away. You have your own. If we could spend the rest of our lives immersing ourselves in Scripture and entering deeply into the truth that God is good, that he is for us, that he is on our side, and we are precious in his eyes. And knowing all this, beginning to have confidence in all this, is crucially important if we're going to humbly and courageously pursue the truth about ourselves, pursue a doctorate in self. We have to deeply know that God is good and that he is for us, that his desire for us is to have a radiant life, that he invites us to life. We have to know this if we're going to pursue the truth about ourselves. I have a few friends in my life who, because of their goodness, because of their wisdom, their own knowledge of themselves, their humility, their lack of any ulterior motives, and their obvious and unconditional love for me, who can point out any painful and ugly truth about me. And while it might wound me deeply, and it has, I will hear it. I will assume that it is truth straight from God himself. And I will not resist it. I will not defend myself. I will not try to alter the narrative. But I will sit and I will listen and I will repent. And I am able to do this because they are good. And I know they love me. And I want to argue here that if we're going to pursue a radiant life, a doctorate in self, then we must have as a foundational truth about us, a growing confidence in God's goodness and his love for us. We will never grow very far in our life with God without this. Third step along the way to this doctrine in self, and this is where the path gets kind of difficult. We have to learn how to sit in the weeds of our sin. One of my favorite authors whom I have read often over the years is a southern devout Catholic woman from the mid-20th century named Flannery O'Connor. And she is, I want to tell you, an acquired taste. Not everyone likes her. She once said that death to death people we must shout, and to the blind we must draw large figures. So her novels and short stories are full of shouting and large figures. I recommended a short story of hers to a group of people who had got together to explore creative writing with me. And after they had read it, I had several people ask me fairly assertively, why did you ask us to read that? That was terrible. I'm traumatized. And, and I get that. I felt bad for that. I still feel bad about that. So I just want to say she is indeed an acquired taste. And I'm more careful about recommending her these days. But I'm still going to quote from her novel, Wise Blood. If you decide to read her on your own, do so forewarned and you can't blame me. But this dark novel is about a boy preacher who was obsessed with religion and preaching, but who was running from God. And here's what Flannery O'Connor says about him. 
There was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. The way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Later, he saw Jesus move from tree to tree in the back of his mind, a wild, ragged figure motioning him to turn around and come off into the dark where he might be walking on the water and not know it, and then suddenly know it and drown. So there you get a little feel of her writing. She's really quite an amazing writer, but I want us to focus our thoughts on one phrase. There was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. Now, for most of us, we read that and we think, well, there's a typo there. What she meant to say was the way to avoid Jesus was to sin, not to avoid sin. Because Jesus and sin are incompatible, so we've often been taught. But that's not what she wrote. And if we start reading through the Gospels, we might begin to have some idea of what she was trying to say, because who meets Jesus in the Gospels? Well, the thief on the cross, the woman caught in adultery, the woman at the well, the tax collector, the betrayer, the doubter, the prostitute. We are told sometimes that God cannot be in the presence of sin. And yet we are told in Scripture that Jesus was a friend of sinners. The incarnation itself, where God clothed himself in human flesh and walked right into the sin-sick and the sin-ravaged world, teaches us that God is easily able to be with us in our sin. The problem is, I think, is that we have a very small, very limited understanding of sin. We tend to think of sin as naughtiness, and we're not supposed to be naughty. And then we argue over which sins are naughtier than other sins. And I'm not arguing at all here that all sins are the same, because they're not. Some sins are decidedly more destructive than others. But sin, I think, for our purposes and to be helpful, can more accurately be thought of as a vandalization of shalom. The world is created to be a certain way. And human actions and behaviors and thoughts and attitudes work against God's desire for this human flourishing, working against the way that God intended the world to be. And we're all guilty of this, right? Every time I am dishonest, every time I hide from the truth, every time I use whatever means are in my power to force my will upon others, Every time I clutch my life to my chest out of fear of something being taken away from me. Every time I demand my way. Every time I see people as a means to my end or threats to keep me from what I want. Every time I am defensive because the truth is too painful. Every time I am too self-absorbed to recognize the sacredness of the person in front of me. Every time I am afraid of the truth and give in to that fear. And yes, every time I react with anger and power over someone or give in to greed or lust or envy or violence, and all these and so many other times, I am vandalizing shalom. I am literally harming the world. See, my life matters. Your life matters. We affect this world by our lives. I am either an agent of shalom 
or I am a vandalizer of shalom. And a radiant life is a life not where I'm trying hard to not be naughty, to avoid those sins on my naughty list. It's not trying hard to be something I know I'm not. But a radiant life is a life where the actual truth and goodness and beauty within me is radiating out. Because it is who I am becoming. And I want to suggest today that if we desire this radiant life, then a doctorate in self will require us to pay very close attention to our sin. Our sin cannot be something we kind of cover over with nice words and with good behavior. But our sin, the ways in which we vandalize shalom, can be our teachers about who we actually are. You often hear people in the news, and perhaps you have said this yourself, someone has been caught in a scandal. They've had an affair. They've got involved in some financial misdoings. They've exploded with violence and anger. They got a DUI. They were caught fabricating their education or their work history. They took a bribe. They made racist remarks. Take your pick. And when they are caught, they say something like, what I did was wrong, and I admit that, but that's not who I am. Well, they're mistaken. That's precisely who they are. We engage in those things because that's precisely who we are. I didn't just do a violent act. I am a violent person. I didn't just lie about my education as a one-off aberration. I am a person who lies, a liar. That's who I am. I didn't just give in to sexual temptation because I happened to be weak that one time. No, I'm an adulterer. I didn't just make a mistake one time when I cheated on that test. I'm a cheater. I'm a person who cheats. Now, that's not all who we are, of course. We're much more complicated than that. We are also good and noble and beautiful, and we are learning how to love deeply. All that's true as well. But when we refer to our sins as one-offs, something that's not really me, just an isolated mistake, then our sins can never teach us about who we really are. And they cannot lead us into a radiant life. We must learn to sit in the weeds of our sin. Right in the midst of them. In real time. And make space to be with God there. Make space for God. He is good, remember. He is on our side. We may be disgusted about ourselves, but God is not. He loves us. And the surest way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. We see this marvelously demonstrated in the story in John chapter 4 with Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well that I read at the beginning of this message. Jesus meets this woman, a Samaritan, who he's not supposed to associate with, and he asks her for some water to drink from her cup, a forbidden thing and an intimate thing to do. And this woman, knowing that this Jewish teacher was not supposed to be talking to her, let alone drinking from her cup, she's a bit troubled because she's had a bit of a checkered past. She's had five husbands and was currently living with a man who was not her husband. And Jesus, of course, knows all this. But he does not recoil from it. There is no condemnation. He loves her. He engages with her. He breaks all sorts of rules that would keep him from doing naughty things like this. And the woman tries to shift the conversation to theological matters, and Jesus indulges her for a few minutes. 
and ends up talking about the living water that he has to offer. And if she drinks it, she'll never be thirsty again. And she says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. This was, of course, in that moment, extremely uncomfortable for this woman. Woman. She wanted to change the subject, and she got into a, tried to get into a conversation about the proper place to worship, but Jesus got into that quickly and changed the subject. And the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, who am speaking to you, I am he. Then leaving her water jar, the woman bent back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ, the anointed one? Notice this encounter. They got into the weeds of her life, the sin. And what does Jesus do? He does not shame her. He does not recap of all the terrible things. He doesn't tell her how naughty she is. Her own inner world was condemning her, but not Jesus. He does not lecture her. He does not shame her. He knows her. He knows everything about her, all the details. And after that encounter, she says to her friends and family, come see a man who told me everything about my life. Could he be the one? Why have we been so afraid to let Jesus into the darkest places of our lives? Have we mistaken the voices of our own shame, our own inner condemnation and disgust with ourselves at times, our own fear that people will discover the con job that we've been pulling off on the rest of the world? Here is a woman who sat with the Son of God in the weeds of her sin, with the one who knows everything about her, and he offered her eternal life. He offered her a radiant life. Here's what I'm going to suggest we do with this. I invite each one of us, as part of our pursuit of our, in our doctorate of self, to identify one dark area, only one, one sin, one violation of shalom that we are ashamed of, and go sit in the weeds of that sin. Just pick one. If you're like me, you've got more than one dark area that we keep silent about, that we don't even acknowledge, that we certainly don't invite Jesus and others into. All those other dark areas, ignore them. In fact, sin and sin boldly in all those other areas if you want to. Because no real transformation happens in generalities. It doesn't really work to come before God with some unnamed generic sin. We've got to name it specifically. We don't come before God with the confession, Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. Yeah, of course, big deal. No news there. Everybody knows that. When we aim for breath, cover everything, we get neither breath nor depth. But when we aim for depth, we find that the roots of that one particular sin sink down into a subterranean river in our souls that affects everything else in our lives. 
And so we come before God with one specific sin. It's even better if we come right in the midst of the sin, in real time, without trying to pretty things up to make it more acceptable. We describe it. We say things we've never said before, even to ourselves. We tell the raw, unvarnished truth about ourselves. And then we are silent and we pay attention to the voices. We can be assured that the disgusted, shaming, disappointed, brutal voices, these are not God's ways. We should listen to them carefully. They're coming from somewhere deep inside of us. And they will teach us something about ourselves. But we must learn to stop attributing those voices to God. It would be good, perhaps, to have a journal with you. Writing it down, typing it in, makes it more real. You may want to figure out a safe and secure place to keep that, be it hard copy or electronic form, because this is for God's eyes only. There's no posturing here. There's no pretending. There's no trying to make it all pretty and fix it up and resolve everything. Just the raw, unvarnished truth. And this will most undoubtedly have to be done numerous times. So let us be patient. But here's where we can believe in God. He will do his work. It's important for us to realize this. You are not a problem that God has to solve. You're not a problem that God has to solve. You are his daughter, his son, whom he adores. And you are precious to him. And his great desire for you and for me, for us, is to have a radiant life. Let me close with a final point that I touched on at the beginning. Why do we do all this? Not to reach some state of, of, of enlightenment or mystical bliss, although when we are honest and truthful before the God who actually exists, he will come to us and he will bring us experiences of love that are indeed mystical, supernatural, even ecstatic, because he will bring us into the reality of the invisible world, his kingdom. But that's not why we pursue this doctrine itself. We pursue this for the sake of the world. Because the world is in trouble. Because the shalom has been vandalized. And we have been a part of that vandalization. And the church, the community of Christ followers, we are to demonstrate an alternative community of love. We are to be a sign and a foretaste of the kingdom of God in our midst. We pursue this doctrine in self so that our selves will be liberated to love, so that we stop hiding, so that we can stop clutching our lives to our chests, so that we can learn to give our lives away to this world that is precious to God, so that we will be radiant. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, eternal and almighty, triune God. You have invited us to enter into the community of eternal love that has always existed with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to experience that love, that unity, that joy, that beauty with you. And yet we are kept from this because of all sorts of dark places, because of all sorts of sins, because of all sorts of narratives that are not according to the truth. We have doubted your goodness. 
we have been afraid and we have given in to that fear. But teach us once more how good you are, how precious we are to you. Help us to be honest, to quit hiding, to quit protecting, and to learn from you how to love this world that is precious to you, that we may radiate your truth, your goodness, your beauty to a world that desperately needs it. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.